Mac Power Users, episode 694, Workflows with Chance Miller. Hello and welcome back to Mac Power Users. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined by my friend and yours, Mr. David Sparks. Hey, Stephen. How are you today? I am good. How are you? Uh, we are heading into WWC. I'm getting kind of excited, man. Got a lot going on. Yeah, it's, it's that time of year. We were talking before we hit record. It's like the scheduling this time of year is very complicated. Uh, lots of moving parts. We're going to talk about some of that in More Power Users today. If you're not a, a member, More Power Users is the longer ad-free version of the show that we do each and every week. And uh, there's a link. It'll be the top link in the show notes. You can check it out and join. And we're right in the middle, actually, of what we call the annual specials time here at Relay FM, where all members get access to bonus episodes of all of our shows. And so uh, David and I, we recorded a Q&A. That's up now for people to listen to. Uh, different shows are doing various wacky things. And so any uh, membership plan at Relay FM gets access to these. But More Power Users is something you should check out. So go hit that link if you want longer ad-free versions of the show. And this is the last show we're going to publish before WWDC. Uh, normally, MPU publishes on Sundays. This one will as well. But the following week, the Sunday will be the day before uh, the keynote. So we thought it'd be silly to publish a show the day before the keynote. Uh, Stephen and I uh, got invited. We're going to be recording a show up in Cupertino that week on Wednesday. And the show will publish a few days late. But we'll get it out right after we record it. Live on site from Cupertino, California. This week, we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, Chance is uh, on staff over at 9to5Mac. He holds the title of Editor-in-Chief, which we're going to talk about. Uh, Chance has been covering Apple for uh, a long time now, about I think about eight years. So we're going to get into that and his gear. But welcome to MPU, Chance. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. So we want to get into uh, a bit about your background. I'm sure lots of people have read your byline over the years over at 9to5Mac. You guys do a great job covering Apple news and rumors and things in the ecosystem. I know anytime there's breaking news, y'all are on top of it. It feels like no matter what time of day it is, which is a question we're going to yeah. get to <laughs> in, the, in the next section, I think. But tell us a little bit about your background and how you ended up being a, a professional blogger. Yeah, so I started at 9 to 5 in 2013. I was 15, so and I was an intern when I started, working primarily on 9 to 5 Google. I basically just emailed our publisher, Seth Weintraub, kind of on a whim, and was just like, hey, I really like your site. Can I write for you? And the next day, he said, how about 9 to 5 Google? I wasn't really using any Google products, but I said, sure. And I just kind of faked it <laughs> till I made it. Yeah. Got my foot in the door, and that's kind of where everything started. I feel like that's such great uh, advice for people. If you want to try to do something, then you should do that thing, right? You know, just send some emails out. Give it a try. It, the, the best way to become a writer is to write. And before 9 to 5, I had written a little bit. I had my own little website and a couple other sites after that but nine to five is where i really got started so it helped having that back portfolio a little bit that i'd done just on the side so that like you said just writing anywhere so did you like go get an android phone and, and learn android at that point what would you do not really i kind of just kept using 
my Apple products and <laughs> relied on a couple other people on the team to do the more in-depth hands-on stuff. And I just stuck to news. I mean, I was an yeah. intern, so I basically did mostly what I was told and yeah. didn't push it and didn't, didn't want to step on any toes. Yeah, sure. But eventually you got over to the, to the side of light to nine to five Mac. Yes. That was after the two years at nine to five Google, it was 2015 when we had a departure of who was considered like our evening editor. And in the interim, before we were going to hire somebody new to fill that role, I had kind of been stepping in to grab like the big stories as they came in during the evening. And after a couple weeks of that, I messaged Seth and I said, do we have anyone lined up for that night position? And he said, I, I haven't really started trying to hire anyone. So kind of just like in 2013, I was like, well, I'll do it if you want me to do it. And that's basically how I got started at 9to5Mac too, just seizing on that opportunity to fill an opening that needed to be filled. And then from there, you became editor-in-chief of 9to5Mac. When did that happen? I started as that night editor in 2015 and then kind of worked as that evening editor all the way through my senior year of high school and through college. And after college, I was kind of itching to get off the the night shift and work a more normal nine to five. And so I did that for a little bit. And then we made some changes at the top of nine to five Mac. And that's just kind of behind the scenes and with other people. And that's kind of how I ended up in editor in chief. It kind of just happened. We just, I was doing a lot of the work and I had a great colleague, Zach Hall, who had basically trained me. So he moved to more of a broader, bigger picture role to get out of the day-to-day news. And I took over as the, the editor in chief from him. I mean, the, the amazing thing is you're, you're 25 now, if my math is right. Correct. And you have 10 years experience writing in this racket. I mean, that's, Already, you've got 10 years experience. That's amazing. <laughs> it's it's crazy to think about. I mean, I've been doing 9 to 5 since like the very tail end of my junior year of high school. And it's been like the most consistent thing in my life since then. I mean, next month, June 1st is 10 years on the dot. Wow. So that's it's been prompting a lot of reflection and kind of gratefulness and want to keep going. I mean... No need to stop. Yeah, sit down um, with a pad of paper or a keyboard on your 10-year anniversary and just write down all your thoughts. You'll want That's to kind of what that I again. did for the show notes of the show. I mean, <laughs> just right. kind of typed and typed and typed. But, I mean, it is something you're going to want to look back on someday. Oh, that's, yeah. a, that's a milestone you've earned. Now, now, in the middle, you said you went to college. Did you do journalism, or what, what did you study in college? No, I, I went to Indiana University, and I studied informatics, which I think might be a fake word, but it's basically working with big data and drawing insights into that and using MySQL and stuff and all of that fun stuff that I'd use absolutely none of in my actual job, but Mm -hmm. going to college was important. I think I liked it and I was able to get it done in three years instead of four. So at times I kind of think I should have either done journalism or shouldn't have done college at all. But I think in the long run, it was, it was the right choice. I always tell people that getting a college degree proves your ability to like put up with nonsense for five, for four years. Right. And 
Yeah. If nothing else, it proves that. And that is a barrier when you're looking to hire somebody. They got a college degree. Oh, yeah, they can put up with a lot of nonsense. All right. So this is somebody that can can stick it out. And I think one important thing for me in college, too, is learning more about how to work with other people. I mean, so much of college is group projects and group assignments and learning how individual people work and learning how you can help them be better and how you can rely on other people to help you be better. That was, that was a big aspect of college for me. I'm just trying to imagine for a second being in college and doing a group project with Stephen Hackett. Hey, <laughs> hey I, I just feel like that I would be afraid of disappointing you. I feel like you'd be <laughs> giving me the look. I was definitely the kid who just sort of took over the group projects. So Yeah, I, I see that. <laughs> you were the person who told people like me what to do. And, <laughs> like, hey, mm-hmm. hey, go do this. Go to this part of the of the the project. Um, I, I want to talk a, a little bit more about uh, your work setup. Nine to five is fully remote. Uh, my understanding is mm-hmm. it's always been fully remote, even before the pandemic. Just like Relay has been. Yep. But uh, you rent office space. You work remotely, but you don't work at home. What went into that decision, and and how's it worked out? So I think that kind of goes back to the early days, like those years when I was working through school. Because, you know, I'd go to class and then come home and work from home. But then when college ended, I was kind of all of a sudden, I didn't have a reason to go anywhere or like there was no class to go to. So I kind of just had the itch to get out and start making some sort of better separation between home and work. But when I graduated in summer of 2019, then I moved to Texas with my wife. And so I had like about six months of working, eight months of working purely at home. And then COVID came, which I think just further proved that I was ready to get out of the working from home grind. Because that was like the extreme end of it where you couldn't even go to a coffee shop and work. You were working from home and there was no alternatives. So towards the end of 2020, I started looking for office space just around town. And I was very lucky to find something. I mean, I live in Waco, Texas, and there's not an abundance of like independent office space that's not 2,000 square feet. Mm -hmm. So I was very lucky to find something and close to home, but not too close. And it gives me that separation to come here and work and have my own space, then go home when I'm done. I do think that's uh, that's important, right? Finding that context for work versus home. And it can be really difficult to do both of those things in the same place. So it's it's not worth it. you know. Or I guess I'd say it's worth getting the space if that's what you need to get there, right? Get to that yeah. context shift. And And I would have probably looked into like, building something like at our house if we weren't renting. Like, I think that's a really good, a really good like in-between solution, but that wasn't really an option since we're renting and we don't want to pay to majorly improve somebody else's house. So I I agree. I I just did that and it is a lot of money. And, uh, but at the end of the day it works. And, but even then I think for some people that can be hard and I do the same thing. When I come in here, I shut the door and this is work. And when I'm done, I leave and I shut the door and that's a different place for me. I don't, I don't hang out in here and goof off. Exactly. Yeah. That's the key for me. I think is I come here and I get things done and there's not, there's like 
very few ways to slack off in terms of not sitting at a desk and just knocking out your your list of things to do for that day. And, and I mean, the office space is a pretty laid back little building. I mean, it's not like I'm working with a bunch of like labs and stuff. It's just six small individual offices and we're all friendly and can bring my dog. And it's a very, I'm very lucky to have found this place. Do you also like leave your gear there? I know a lot of people do that to kind of help keep those barriers up. They'll leave their computer at work and, when they come home, they don't even have the ability to do work. Not necessarily. I leave bits and pieces at the office, but I always take a MacBook home with me. Just think kind of as Steven said at the start, you never know when news is going to hit and you might have to jump on even if it's technically after hours. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations, man. Ten years. That's, that's oh, impressive. It's, it's been a fantastic ten years and I hope I get to do it for ten more. Let's talk a little bit uh, about your gear. We have some photos in the show notes for people to check out, but it looks like you are a MacBook Pro plus external display person. No, I am a Mac Studio plus a MacBook Pro on the side. Okay, there's a Mac Studio hiding somewhere in, is the, in this picture then. Yes, the Mac Studio is mounted under the desk using the 3D printed thing I bought on Etsy, I think. Yeah, yeah, I and had one. <laughs> that, yeah, I think through you is how I heard about it. And so that's mounted under the desk. And then that goes to my display, which is the Pro Display XDR. And that is, that's the core of the setup in terms of at the office. So then a Magic keyboard, Magic trackpad, and the Logitech MX Master 3, I think it's called. Mm-hmm. I've been using this mouse or a version of this mouse for 10 years, so it served me well. And then the 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 thing about the Mac Studio, I think, is when you mount it under your desk like I've done, it's, it creates the iMac-style experience, which I, is important, especially now that Apple doesn't sell an iMac that's not the 24-inch M1 iMac. Yeah. So yeah. this is... And obviously, there's more cost-effective ways to do it now that the studio display is out, but... I bought this before the studio display existed. Yeah, and I think that's what Apple, though, was aiming for with the Mac Studio display was you want an iMac, you get one of these little things and connect it to one of these big things and you got an iMac. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had, I mean, because we've been down this road. I remember all the emails we would get at Mac Power users from people complaining about the iMac saying, well, my my iMac went bad, but the display is perfectly safe or perfectly fine. It you know it's such wa- such a waste that I have to get rid of this computer that has a working screen on it. So, no matter which way Apple goes, people complain. But uh, <laughs> I guess the new thinking, except for that that M1 iMac, is that you get a separate display and a separate Mac. And I think for most people, that that display will be used with multiple computers over the years. The modularity is what's really nice about a setup like this. And if I mean, right now, there's pretty much nothing Apple could release that would convince me to ditch the Mac Studio. I mean, a Mac Pro would be overkill for me. And I don't really have a desire to do the laptop plus external screen setup. Yeah. And even a new Mac Studio, I don't think I would be really tempted by because this is already so overspecced for what I need. Yeah. So this um, this is hopefully I say this now, but going to be my setup for a while. Yeah, 
No, I, and I think it probably will. Um, I know because, like you, I have an XDR display. I really hope it lasts a long time. <laughs> I really, yeah, I really want to. I really want this thing to end up costing me more like three or four hundred dollars a year. Not uh, yeah. That's yeah. A, that's the way I want to think about it at the end of life for this display. <laughs> and I'm kind of regretting not buying like Apple Care on it or even Apple Care on the Mac Studio because I've seen some people. They've had some problems with their Mac Studio, especially as we like. It's been what a little bit over a year, yeah. And some people, especially with the fans and the the vents, and it seems like there might be some design flaws there. But I'm hoping that it that it prevails. Do you think? Uh, do you have a problem with sound? I know you do a lot of recording as well. Some people complain the Mac Studio is too loud. Do you have any issues with that? No, I have. I even if I put my ear up to the Mac Studio, I can't hear it. But even if it did make a little bit of sound, I think having it mounted under the desk on the basically the opposite side of where the display is and where my setup is, I don't think it would be a big problem. Yeah, yeah. And for the audience, I'll just let you know that um, Chance has done a very good job with cable management. I fully approve. <laughs> There's just one cable in his image. Uh, but then you've got a, a laptop on the desk too. So how... Does that work, having a laptop plus a Mac Studio driving a, a Pro Display? The laptop isn't there every day, and it's not heavily used throughout the day. But the biggest thing is universal control. So if I, I can just easily move back and forth between the, the MacBook Pro and the XDR. Yeah. And so that if I have something that maybe I have to put a video up to watch, like an interview or something, and then transcribe it or... With multiple windows for the writing and the transcribing on the XDR, I can just move the video over to that screen on the MacBook Pro to watch it. Or, I mean, sometimes it's just for fun. Like, I think in the picture I sent for the show notes, the MacBook Pro is like playing a Coldplay concert. And I'll just put that on and listen through it and listen to it throughout the day. And it's nice being able to look over and see it, too. Yeah, I've done something very similar with a 12.9-inch iPad, which... Mm-hmm. It does sometimes just play YouTube videos or things. And I've got this giant screen. I could absolutely do all of this on that one screen, but it's kind of nice having things off to the side once in a while. Yeah, and it, the XDR screen is so big. It, if you get too much going on, it can get distracting. And having a video playing like all the time, even if you put it in the upper left corner or something in picture and picture, it's still in the way and it's still distracting. Otherwise, you just put it on the other screen, and it's there if you want to look at it, but it's out of the way. Now, how did you decide on, because you have the 16-inch MacBook Pro. You got the big one. Um, how did you yeah. decide on that one? So the last year, I did a whole bunch of travel, uh, basically from Texas to Indiana to take care of my mom, basically one week out of every month. So when I was doing that travel, I was still working while I was in Indiana, but I was working almost entirely from like the same, the same, the same space. I wasn't moving around. I was working at my mom's house sure. at the kitchen table. So that's kind of when I realized that a 16 inch screen would be useful for that to give me the most screen real estate and allow me kind of to replicate as much of my normal setup as I could. I mean, it's definitely bulkier and heavier than a MacBook air, but since I wasn't, doing a lot of moving around in that travel, it was the best option. Obviously it's heavier, but you know, as you were talking, I just thought of like, there are different kinds of travel computing. There's the travel computing you do on like extended 
stays. Like you go somewhere, Mm -hmm. like taking care of your mom or maybe an extended vacation where you want the most computer you can on your desk. You're really not carrying it around a lot, but you, when you, you get to a destination and you need a, a computer, that is a different kind of travel computing than I'm going back and forth to work every day. And I need to have, you know, this thing in my backpack on the subway kind of thing. I think those are two very different scenarios. Yeah, it is. And for the first couple of trips up there, I would just use a MacBook Air. But once I kind of got a better idea of the workflow on those trips and how I was working and where I was working, I realized that the upgrade would probably be worth it. What about on the mobile side? Where are you with the iPhone and iPad? Uh, iPhone is the iPhone 14 Pro Max, and I've basically been Pro Max since they've been a thing plus before it then what was it the 10s 10 yeah 10s pro max and haven't looked back since it's in an apple leather case that i love and it's starting it's been what about 10 months since the iphones came out so it's starting to wear and look looks cool i think and then uh beyond that it i use the magsafe wallet thing on the back and that's about it in terms of iphone Are you an iPad guy? So I have a 2018 12.9-inch iPad Pro with the Magic Keyboard that doesn't get used, and that's why it's the 2018, and I haven't upgraded. I mean, it gets used, but mainly for watching videos, and sometimes it'll be on the desk instead of the MacBook Pro if I have to use something in iPadOS or I'm testing something in iPadOS. But beyond that, it doesn't get used much at all it's and i have no intentions of upgrading that it's i'm gonna use the 2018 ipad pro until it no longer works but then i also have an ipad mini and that gets used a lot more basically at at home anytime i might be doing something on my iphone i use the ipad mini instead it's just it's a much it's a good balance of being bigger and having some of the ipad os features and but not being, you don't feel pressure to do work on it. And it gives you that extra screen real estate if you want to watch a quick video or something that you would usually use your iPhone for. And the iPad mini has so many uh, iPad converts, like people who like never got the iPad, but get the, get the iPad mini and suddenly they're mm-hmm. using it a lot more. And I think part of the in reason that I don't really plan on buying a new iPad Pro is the 11-inch just feels a little neglected. There's not much that it would offer me over what I have now and what I use the iPad mini for. I do prefer the 11 inch form factor, I think compared to the 12.9 inch, but I mean, it's still missing the most importantly, the nicer display technology. And I think there's rumors of a bigger iPad pro revamp next year, but for now I'm happy with the iPad mini and with the iPad pro as a backup. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by 1Password. Today, I'd like to talk about how you can use 1Password to rescue a friend, because I just did that a few weeks ago. I've got a good friend, and she's struggled with passwords. She was using the same password at multiple websites and got hacked and called me knowing I'm a nerd, saying, hey, Sparky, what am I going to do here? So I had her come over the house. We sat down, signed her up for a 1Password account. And we've got her working with 1Password now, and she is loving it. 
1Password is great because you don't have to be a super nerd to in order to run it. Now, we are all Mac Power users here. We're able to do some pretty cool stuff with our technology, but not everybody is. And 1Password is made for those folks, too. With 1Password, you can easily create a strong and unique password and a unique password for every different login that you have. So if you get your password hacked at one side, it doesn't cause problems at all the other sides. 1Password keeps track of it for you. I showed her how it lets her know if she's got duplicate passwords. It also does a great job of protecting you from the other side of that transaction, making sure the people you are working with are not compromising your password. They call it Watchtower, and it keeps an eye on the services that you're working with, and it lets you know if one of them has been compromised. It also has that great feature with the secure notes, where you can have secure information that's protected behind the 1Password vault, and you can put confidential information in there and know that even if somebody unlocks your phone, they're not going to get to that data. It really has the full suite of tools there to help somebody that's even not that sophisticated get started and protect themselves on the internet. Uh, Like I said, I'm feeling really good about my friend. She gets it now. She called me the other day and said she signed up for a new service and used 1Password and was really happy with it. Now she's sharing it with her friends because it really does take the password problem and solve it for you. So why don't you rescue a friend this weekend Uh, Take them aside, show them how 1Password works, get them set up with it, and you can get them 20% off. Just go to onepassword.com slash MPU. So not only can you be the hero that helps them with passwords, you can also save them a few bucks. That is, once again, onepassword.com slash MPU. Check it out and share it with a friend. And thank you, 1Password, for all of your support of the Mac Power users. So Chance, I want to talk a little bit more about life at 9to5Mac. What are some of your responsibilities as editor-in-chief? First and foremost, I think my focus is still primarily on writing and covering Apple on a day-to-day basis and covering things quickly, finding unique stories, coming up with ideas, all of that, that, that good stuff. But on, in addition to that, there's also the aspect of kind of managing a team and knowing when to give other people posts or approving stuff that they pitch to me or coming up with ideas for them. That's kind of a key aspect, I think, in terms of not doing too much myself and making sure I'm doing what I'm good at and what I like doing and making sure other people have their own their own assignments, their own tasks, and can focus on their different interests. But ultimately, 9to5Mac is still such a small team. I think we have basically four full-time editorial people, which is actually smaller than we used to be just because some people have left and we haven't replaced them just because we don't feel the need to because this core group that we have is so close-knit. And that, I think, contributes a lot to how we're able to do things so efficiently and so with and with a lot of fun, too. Like, we're, we're all friends and having the editor-in-chief title is like there's not a whole lot of leading that goes on with such a small team where everybody is so close well i mean it's shocking how small the team is based on the way you guys are always there i mean it's it's the website that always has the up-to-date latest news and rumors and uh that's an impressive amount of work for a small team and part of it too is being fully remote and having people in different countries and different time zones like we have Someone in Brazil, somebody in uh, London, and then a couple of us in the East Coast, me in Central Time Zone, 
the time zones help. And I mean, we have some other side contributors who are part-time or do what they can when they want to. And that helps a lot too. If it's the weekend and something happens, chances are at least somebody, even if they're one of those contributors is around to, to grab it and get it done. So the burden is spread pretty nicely. I feel like the, um, you know, the model of making a news-based website on a niche thing like Apple, it used to be a big deal. There used to be a lot of sites out there. Now there are very few. Um, how do you guys make it work? I mean, like the, the, you know, the blog advertising obviously is much smaller than it used to be mm-hmm. um, to the extent you're comfortable. I mean, how does that all, how do you guys keep the lights on? Well, it starts by being nimble and being, we don't have pretty much any overhead at all. We have just our team and the, the tech behind the website and that sort of thing. But I think one thing we've been able to do really well is adapt and sort of whether what changes might hurt websites that aren't prepared or aren't, aren't on top of things, whether that's changes to Google and their SEO things or their AdSense things. And we're a, we are on top of things enough to be able to adapt quickly to those changes, again, partially because we are so small. And there's no big corporation behind us putting hurdles up for us to make changes. If there's a change that needs to be made, we can make it like that day or the next day. Yeah. So that, that's been an, a key part of it, I think, is just staying nimble and staying, being as responsive as we can to those changes. Because they come quickly. Google can make a change that will wreck you in a day. But if you're able to adapt and respond to those changes, then you can, again, weather the storm better than another site might that might be able to yeah, it's weird dealing with these big companies because you are like nothing to them they just don't care I, yeah i had that experience recently i for years i would put occasionally put um, amazon affiliate links and some of the stuff i mm-hmm. put out and i make a few bucks on it. it really wasn't very much money uh, so much of the occasion i'd think well is this even worth the trouble and then uh, at one point I got an email from amazon saying well you put a link in a newsletter and that's not allowed so we're uh, banning mm-hmm. you I never knew that. And, <laughs> and uh, so I wrote them back to say, well, sorry, I didn't know that. They never wrote me back. It was just like a thing. It's like, okay, you're, that's, you're done with that. And if that had been like the core of my business, it would have just taken yeah. that one mistake to like wipe you out. And that's why I try to not be dependent on big companies. <laughs> but, uh, but it is very scary if that is your thing to make sure that you, you don't go astray somehow, even if you don't know it. And I like to look back at like the when Apple did away with the App Store affiliate program. Like that yeah. was a big source of revenue for us, but we were able to pivot. And luckily, I mean, it coincided a little bit with kind of the shift towards subscriptions for apps, where yeah, the revenue had already been dropping. So that happened, and we it really we were just able to move on and continue covering apps and just find other ways to to monetize the site. And then you're also a podcaster. Yes, I host the 9 to 5 Mac Daily podcast, which is five days a week, kind of that day's Apple News in five to ten minutes. It's something that I took over from my colleague Zach in 2019. He started it, and he'd been doing it for a couple of years, I think, and it just wasn't sustainable. He, they, it didn't have ads. It was hard to monetize. It's a grind to do a podcast every day. 
So when I took it over from him in 2019, I set like a outline of the goals and I said, if we can't make it sustainable through ads or something else, and there wasn't a way to streamline the workflow to make it less of a burden, then we were just going to retire it. But luckily, I think pretty quickly, once we looked more at the audience numbers and the benefit of a company getting five consecutive days of their ads, their ad reads on the show and the five consecutive days of being in the show notes, which also goes on the site, we were able to monetize it and make it sustainable. I mean, the ads in a podcast that are that's so short are tricky. And I had I did have to make the show a little bit longer than what when Zach was doing it. When he was doing it, it was more three to five minutes. And now I'm more five to ten, closer to eight or nine most days. But I think listeners understood that trade-off and they were happy or at least willing to listen to a 30-second ad in the middle if it meant the show got to continue happening versus us just retiring it. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of work putting together a podcast. I uh, I have a little experience with that. <laughs> and part of it, too, was kind of changing how the production side of it worked. Like once we were able to monetize it, I was able to stop editing it and have uh, one of my colleagues, Seth Karkowski, he edits for me now every day. So basically my job is just to sit down and record it and then send it all to him and he puts the final product together. So it really only takes me at this point 30 minutes to maybe an hour most days, which is a big is a big improvement than what it was when Zach was doing it and when I started doing it in 2019. Yeah, and a daily podcast for the listeners is a real I mean it's a real discipline, even a short one to just stop every day and do it because it's like the uh you ever see that show Lost? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, the guys that had to punch the numbers in the computer or the world oh, yeah. ended. Yeah, it's a daily podcast starts to feel like that after a while. And I mean, also on that, it does provide a good amount of structure. Like I know when I sit down in the morning, recording nine to five Mac daily is the first thing I'm going to do, so I can get that done, get it out of the way, and then focus on other things and. In the morning, it's just a good way to wake up recording something like that. And it's a good way to kickstart to kick your day. Yeah. Now, you guys are a team, even admittedly small, uh, but you do need mm-hmm. to keep everybody on the same page. How do you organize that? How do you communicate with everybody? So the primary tool that we use, I think, like a lot of remote companies, is Slack. Um, we have dedicated channels for each of our sites. So I guess the context is we have 9to5Mac, 9to5Google, 9to5Toys, Electric, which is green energy, EVs, uh, Drone DJ, and Space Explored. And those are all the sites nowadays. So we have different Slack rooms for each of those. Then we have... Uh, kind of a tag in Slack that's you just type at edit and it tags our copywriting team so they get sure. the, the notifications they need without being bombarded with having every room unmuted. And then also in Slack, we have different sort of integrations. So Slack is kind of key for things like that. We have some custom bots and tools that we've built to monitor kind of Apple server changes and software releases and app updates. So when one of those things happens, that bot in Slack kind of dings and we can look at it. 
then we used to have a bunch of Twitter integrations too. So if somebody who is kind of a reliable source on Twitter tweets something that would come into Slack, but that yeah. broke yeah. recently and <laughs> <Yep>. we haven't <laughs> we haven't fixed it and I don't even know if it's fixable. We've just found other ways to to monitor that stuff. So Yeah. But a lot of those people are going to Mastodon anyway and that's open yeah. enough you'll be able to get that hooked in. And the thing about Twitter, I mean, is it's still such a valuable tool for news gathering. Like it is kind of, it's essential to my day, at least for keeping up with things in real time. I mean, I use RSS and Mastodon and other things to, to follow the less breaking stories. But like if, for instance, if something goes up on Bloomberg or the wall street journal or a bigger outlet like that, where it's going to hit like the, what do they call it? Like the wire mm-hmm. or the terminal or whatever that is. Like there's accounts on Twitter that as far as I can tell, aren't, readily available on Mastodon that those are the accounts we have to follow and we have to see when something like that's going to happen. So as much as I want to move further past Twitter from a news gathering standpoint, it's still such so essential to our team and our process. I wonder if that'll be true in a year. Yeah. I mean, what's wild to think about is we're coming up on around the one year of when all the Twitter acquisition stuff happened and it hasn't changed yet. I don't know if yeah. like, for instance, one of the limitations of a lot of the Mastodon clients is that you can't like pin your feed to the top to have it just kind of streaming your all new tweets or all new posts, like as they come in mm-hmm. once either, I don't know if that's a Mastodon API limitation or a client limitation, but once things like that on Mastodon get more readily available, I think that'll go a long way towards removing at least our reliance on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's just in a, in a weird place right now where your use case is still really valuable, but mm-hmm. for a lot of people, their community is gone, and so they've, exactly. they've moved on to. So it is like, it's sort of in this this middle area, but and but just like y'all and like everybody else, we had a bunch of tools that relied on it that none of them mm-hmm. work anymore. So we've had to like figure out new things. Like we built a feedback system on our website because you know how we used to get feedback 100% Twitter and that doesn't, that doesn't really work anymore. And like our auto tweet functionality, we had a custom solution that broke and then we quickly switched to the built-in WordPress solution, which they turned off because of Twitter's changes and how much they wanted to charge. Yeah. But we were able to like update our custom little integration bot thing to with an API key and it comes in like right under the threshold for what would be like $10,000 a month or something. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure (laughs) at some point there'll be more changes like that, that are ultimately going to further break things on our end. Yeah. Chance, you do your writing in Obsidian. Yes. I'm kind of a recent convert to Obsidian. I don't use it to nearly its full potential, But I like how streamlined it is if you're just getting words onto a page, but you also need to do formatting, adding links, and other various things like that. So it's in terms of just having all of my posts in Obsidian, then sorting them and having a database to search kind of previous coverage of something, it's, it's the most versatile tool in that regard. And then from Obsidian, I basically manually copy and paste the story itself into WordPress 
And I know there's things that can like auto move a story from Obsidian or something like Ulysses to WordPress, but I don't generally trust any of those because I want to see kind of exactly what's happening and I don't want something to go wrong in that process and either something is posted that shouldn't have been or the formatting gets all messed up. So I just like to manually do copy and paste from Obsidian to WordPress. I totally get it. I have a podcast called The Automators and there's still things Mm -hmm. that I refuse to automate because sometimes the process is important. There's instances too. I think it's kind of all of our worst fears where something gets published that was embargoed or not supposed to go up or not ready to go up. And we have to do everything we can to reduce that from happening. Because if we have an embargo from a company like Apple and we break that embargo, we're going to hear about it. (laughs) It might affect us getting any future embargoes. So things like that are just super careful. First, you're going to hear about it and then you're never going to hear about it. Yeah. (laughs) You'll hear about it and that's the last time you'll hear from Apple. (laughs) But you don't just go through Obsidian. You also, I understand, use Grammarly. Yeah. Grammarly is just something that a Safari, have it as a Safari extension. And when I move things into WordPress, it kind of does its pass through the story. And we have copy editors too, who will take a final look at things either right before it's published or right after. And I'm sure some people are listening are going to say, well, your stories have had typos and that's obvious, but yeah, all stories do. Yeah. They have (laughs) a lot less typos than they would without copy editors and Grammarly. (laughs) I used to make so much fun of these, these grammar checkers. I remember Microsoft word was the first time I ever saw it. You know, like spell checking was a cool thing when that showed up, but then they added grammar checkers, and Microsoft Word's grammar checker was terrible, if you, anybody's old enough to remember when it first started. And I had just kind of written them off, and then one day Grammarly showed up, and I decided to give it a try. And it's shocking to me how often it helps me with little things, even like voice and, um, and, and mm-hmm. grammar stuff that I should have caught but don't, or even just nice little suggestions for improvements. So, so much so that just about everything I publish anymore goes through the same workflow. And for a team like us, like where speed is important and we're all writing thousands of words a day, our time is just better spent on the writing than meticulously checking and catching things that Grammarly just catch, catches on its own and that our copy editors will just catch. So, Yeah. What do you do for task management? Oh, so right now... I'm using Todoist. Before that, I used things for years and nothing, there was no specific thing that pushed me away from things. I just kind of got the itch to try something. So I switched from things to reminders. And reminders was really good. The problem I had with it was just, I didn't like having home stuff and work stuff in the same app. Sure. It's like on a Saturday, I'd go to look at the grocery list and I'd get a glance at what was coming up on Monday. And, oh, you have seven stories to write, two meetings and 10 emails to respond to. And then that just stressed me out for the rest of the Saturday. It wasn't yeah. far enough out of mind. Yeah. So then that's what pushed me towards Todoist, which is where I am today. And I don't know how long I'm going to stay, but it's, I'm giving it a shot. Need to, you need to start using focus filters. Didn't we have, don't we have focus filters for reminders? I think so. Uh, well, part of the problem with reminders for me was just the actual, unless I'm not from, don't know if focus filters addresses this, but opening the app 
and s- just seeing the other lists in there. Yeah. Yeah. Having I'll it all in that one spot was, was, it was just frustrating. I may be wish casting here. I'm not sure. <laughs> I know they had to do it for Kellens. I thought they had it, but you know, the, figuring that out during a live podcast is never really the greatest entertainment, but yeah, I get it though. Um, the reminders I'm hearing from so many people that are using reminders now because it just does keep getting closer and closer to being mm-hmm. a very powerful task application. That's why I use it for home things with my wife. There's a lot of, it's powerful and it syncs and you can share things super easily. And for things like that, there's nothing better. And if you're willing to try to use Siri for task capture, I think that is where reminders is probably best in class. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, do you do voice control stuff? No, no sort of voice. I mean, I use Siri for the obvious things and through HomePods for HomeKit. But other than that, not nothing too wild with voice control or dictation or in, pretty much anything in that regard. Okay. You mentioned uh, universal control. I just want to circle back to that for a second. Uh, it sounds like you're using it between uh, a couple of Macs, but have you found that to be pretty reliable in the, what is a couple years since it's been out? It's reliable when it works. And if it doesn't work, it's infuriating to figure out why it's not working because <laughs> Apple doesn't really expose many settings to you. Like you and you can't like manually search like have one Mac search and see if like it's seeing the other Mac or it's not or figuring out which Mac or iPad in the process is the problem. But when it works, it's, it's just as reliable, I think, as having a cable connect to Macs or an external display. Do you get bugs with it often? I mean, I, I do when I run betas, but when I'm running the public release, it just seems to work for me. Well, that's, I'm sure that's part of the problem is because I'm almost always running the beta releases, but it just still having some sort of more granular control over the settings, I think, would help that. Totally unrelated, but for Steven's benefit, I'm going to make a public declaration that my 16-inch MacBook Pro will not run a beta of whatever we get in a few weeks. I <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate okay, that. Yeah, because I uh, <laughs> I am known to sometimes stray, but the the fact that I have a second Mac, I have that MacBook Air, all bets are off for that machine. I'm yeah. going to light it on fire right after WWDC. <laughs> yeah, I think that that's good. I mean, I think all three of us are probably on and off the beta train throughout the year. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you handle that? Do you do you le- like this summer? Will you leave your Mac Studio on? Ventura and the laptop go to whatever's next. Like what's sort of your technique? Yeah, that'll be the exactly what I do where the MacBook Pro will s- s- go ahead to the betas and the Mac Studio will stay behind at least for the first few rounds of betas. Cuz once we get into the like the third and the fourth beta when we really start to see a lot of changes for these big yearly releases, having t- one computer that's on the newest beta then one computer that's on like the previous beta, so one on beta three and one on beta two. Mm-hmm. That's a really great way to track differences. So eventually both will get to the beta, but at first, like that beta one, that's not touching my Mac Studio. That's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, especially doing audio work. A lot of those mm-hmm. tools have issues because they're you know they're doing lower level stuff. A lot of like user regular user applications like Todoist or something like that will, will be just fine. 
but those of us who push it a little bit harder, I mean, that's why I stay off the beta on my on my main machine as well. It's like it's a production machine. I got to do shows all the time. And uh, since the last beta cycle, I've gone just to one Mac, just a 14 inch MacBook Pro. Mm-hmm. But I've got an uh, 2018 MacBook Air that I will I will sacrifice to the beta gods this summer. And that's what I'll do on the iPhone side too. Is I have a I think it's a 12 Pro that I've kept exactly for pretty much entirely for betas. So that'll get upgraded to the newest beta first. And then same thing that I'll do on the Mac, I'll do there where gradually both of them move over to track differences. I have to admit, I usually just put my burn, my day-to-day phone on the beta almost immediately. <laughs> I just don't care. I probably what, what will do that wrong? pretty soon. But What could go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For me, it's just waiting and seeing what exactly is broken. And if like like banking apps, for instance, are one of the things that seems to be broken more often than not. Yeah. So if I get stuck at the airport on the way to record Mac Power users, it'll mm-hmm. be because I have the beta and I couldn't get my airline ticket. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> now Steven's not going to sleep. Yeah. This episode of MPU is made possible by Text Expander. With Text Expander, your team can communicate faster so they can focus on what's most important. Because with Text Expander, the entire team's knowledge is at everyone's fingertips. Get everyone on the same page by getting information out of silos into the hands of everyone who needs it. You can share your team's knowledge across departments so your team is sending a unified message to your customers and not spending time reinventing the wheel. So you can store your company's most used emails, phrases, messaging, URLs, and more in Text Expander. You can then share it. Your whole team has access to all the content they need. You can organize it and expand it so they can deploy this content with just a few keystrokes on any device across any app they're using. I could not do my work without Text Expander. I have so many things that I I don't even think about. It's just muscle memory now. If I need a date and time or I need a certain bit of markdown, put something maybe in the CMS or Relay FM, all sorts of things are in Text Expander for me. And we use it across Relay FM with a bunch of us so we get things like sponsor names correct and some messaging that we send on a regular basis. I really couldn't be as efficient and as effective as I am without it. Text Expander is available for the Mac, Windows, Chrome, iPhone, and iPad. Show listeners get 20% off their first year. Go to textexpander.com slash MPU to learn more and sign up. Once again, that's textexpander.com slash MPU. Chance, uh, WWDC is coming. Mm -hmm. Uh, You are one of my favorite authors about what's coming because over at 9to5Mac, you do such a good job of kind of uh, sifting through the mess. I, I feel like a lot of the rumor uh, sites are just nonsense and i feel like a lot of it is just us getting punked by people but mm-hmm. i always feel like nine to five mac is discriminating and the rumors you guys report on i think usually have some merit to them and you've been reading them all and writing about them all so let's break it down for the audience um begin with this apple headset um is this you think going to happen this year i think it's almost a guarantee at this point that Apple is going to show us something at WWDC, but it's not going to be final. And it's definitely not going to be available for anybody to buy until later this year. Or we've even heard a little bit about maybe not even till early next year. So I think I liken it kind of to the Apple Watch where we saw it and saw what it was 
going to be used for and developers got the chance to start taking advantage of it, but it was months before anybody could actually buy it. But at WWDC, we'll see something. I'm confident. Yeah, and and if we if the price is where the rumors are, at, you know, I guess circling around three grand, we're going to need mm-hmm. six months to mow lawns and stuff anyway. Yeah. Where we're going to get one of these things. This is going to be the prime example of me saying I'm buying something for my work. <laughs> yeah, using that as the excuse. There, there's like an arc to my relationship with the headset where first I was like, oh, yeah, I definitely want one. Then I was like, oh, that seems like a lot of money. Maybe I don't need one. And now I'm like circling back. It, it, you know, Apple's so good at this stuff. I'm very curious. And this is the thing we're not getting the rumors on. Is like, what are the uses for it and what's the story behind it? Or, or are there rumors on that? I really haven't heard of any if there are. Well, part of it seems to be that even Apple's not entirely sure what like the the most popular use cases will be. So it seems like this first version is going to just kind of throw a lot of stuff at the wall and we'll see what sticks and sort of like the Apple watch, they'll refine and dig deeper into the most popular features and subsequent releases. But some of the things we've heard for XROS, which is supposedly going to be the software that powers the headset seems like the focus is on things like communication Content consumption. Uh, there's apparently like a version of FaceTime where through the headset you'll see the person that you're talking to in like a emoji type form of some sort, which sounds that'll like render it like you're actually looking at the person, which sounds cool but also creepy. Yeah. Yeah. I think Stephen and I, if that happens, that we're going to only talk via emoji headset. Oh, I don't know. I hate it already. <laughs> this episode just keeps getting worse and worse for Steven. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it does. It does feel that way. I, I tend to agree. I think they're going to sort of follow the Apple Watch approach. I, I don't think that's even necessarily a bad thing, as I wrote last month, that Mm-mm. everything has to be a computer now, right? And I think it will find its way just like the watch did. I mean, the watch is everywhere now, and it, it, it has focused on what... Uh, what people want out of it. It just took Apple a little time to figure out what that was. But I don't think that means it's like a cursed launch or that it won't be successful out of the gate. But it is just, it's it's different now, right? When the iPod came out, it played music because it was a music player, right? That's, <laughs> that's what mm-hmm. it did. But now everything needs to be a little bit of an everything machine. And I think that's fine. I, w- I was talking about this in a labs video, but I feel like looking back at the iPhone, I remember what smartphones were and there was a definite look and shape and feel to smartphones. And we heard Apple was making a smartphone. So I was thinking it would be something like that. And I even remember the concept art of a phone with a iPod click wheel on it. Like there yeah. was just all these mm-hmm. weird ideas about it, but when they announced it and it was just all screen, that was revolutionary. Nobody had really thought about it that way. And it changes the way smartphones are. And that that is like Apple at their best, you know, taking a product category that exists and putting a lot of thought into it and reimagining it. And that is in a perfect world what we get. I, I would love to see them take on this virtual reality, augmented reality thing you strap on your face concept and like take it to a new level. Whether we get that or not, I don't know, but that's what I'd like. I think that's kind of what we're going to see just in terms, I mean, it's the classic Apple thing where they have so many of these parts already in place 
in various different products. And we've seen AR and VR features and iOS. And this will kind of be the culmination of all of that. And some of those things have been refined for years. So there'll be things that come out of the gate that are going to be impressive. It's just, again, a question of what sticks. Yeah. And for me personally, I'd be interested in the productivity story. Is there a way mm-hmm. to use this to be more efficient or do better work? Uh, I don't know. That's Maybe that's going to be a stretch, but uh, we, we'll see. One of the rumors on the kind of the productivity stuff is some sort of integration with your Mac to where the headset will be able to serve as a display for your Mac. So you'll see your Mac's display in virtual reality. And then at least at first you'll use your traditional trackpad or mouse and keyboard to control it. But Apple's also working on some like air typing features and all of that. But that was one of the, the using it as a display for my Mac was one of the things that kind of pushed me over the edge to be like, okay, that sounds kind of cool. Yeah, well, and they already have that even on the uh, Facebook thing. What, I forget what's the name of their yeah. headset. Uh, but the uh, Oculus, yeah. Yeah, but it was Oculus, but they changed it, I think. Uh, but either way, uh, they ha- they've had that. And I, I've used it on the original Oculus, and it's cool. Uh, and you could really like build a huge screen if you wanted. And I, I think that's a given. But can they mm-hmm. go further? If the rumors are true and it's going to have these amazing displays in them, can you make it even better? And uh, that's the question, right? Uh, what about iOS 17? What, what are you hearing through the rumor mill about iOS 17? The iOS 17 rumors kind of started off by saying, don't expect a whole lot. Apple's been pulling resources to focus on the headset. But we have heard a few things since then there. One of the more interesting things, I think, is this rumored journaling app, which will reportedly be kind of a tie-in with Find My. So it'll be able to like intelligently know where you were and who you were with at certain parts of the day. And then you can go in and either manually write things about that day or put pictures or stuff like that. It's That sounds interesting but i'm curious to see just how well apple's able to use the find my how many people are willing to use find my for that functionality Mm -hmm. yeah i think in particular the privacy story around that one is important right like it's one thing to kind of know oh yeah find my like knows where i am so my spouse can find me on the map when i'm home you know home out late or something but it's different when you kind of see that all collated into an app Exactly. And uh, I think there's going to need to talk about that. And I'm sure they they have a good story around that. I mean, Apple cares really deeply about that stuff. But they've got to, uh, I think they got to come out of the gate with with that first. I think that um, if anybody could do that, it would be Apple. And and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm curious to see how it works compared as a longtime user of day one, and Stephen is too, um, how do they line up and how are they different I mean, there's a lot of stuff day one does that I expect Apple will not do. So it'll be a, an interesting comparison. And it's a question, too, of what day one's allowed to do. Yes. Because if, if Apple makes some of this location stuff available as a API, then that basically day one would then be the best of both worlds. But mm-hmm. that's a question. Yeah, and day one can do some location stuff now. Like you, you get uh, like a history of where you've been, and of course you can tag locations to post but you're right it's it's what will they bring in or expose to themselves not 
third parties. And I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's gotten Apple in hot water before. So I think they've got to tread lightly there. But I think you're right. That is a key question for the future of that app. Then beyond the journaling app, and but still kind of related is some mood and emotion tracking features in the health app, which will apparently just kind of let you respond on how you were that day and how you were and then gives you some insight over how that changes over time. So that could be interesting. But again, that's kind of something that's already out there. And Apple has some more AI-focused health features in the works. So this will just be kind of like a version one in terms of mood and emotion tracking. But the health app is also reportedly coming to the iPad, which I think that's actually more interesting than a lot of this stuff because the health app has only been on the iPhone until apparently this year. Yeah, that would be. I mean, I I go into the help app all the time and it is vexing that it's not on the iPad. I I wonder if, you know, the iPad in general, every year about this time we start talking, is the iPad going to get better this year? You know, are they going to make more moves to placate power users? Are you hearing anything in the in that category? No, in fact, I'd say it's the exact opposite. We there have not been hardly any rumors about iPad OS 17 except the health app and maybe the lock screen customization things that were in iOS 16 coming to the iPad this year. But other than that, there's been nothing other than, of course, the Final Cut Pro and Logic Pro, which, but that's not tied to iPad OS 17 specifically. Okay. Well, thanks for bursting my bubble there. <laughs> Like hopefully I'm wrong. I want some stage manager improvements and all of that, but I'm kind of over it, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> at this point, in, in a year where the headset is the focus, I can't imagine iPad OS 17 getting yeah. much love. But yeah. we'll see. What about the watch? The watch OS 10 update sounds like it's going to be a big one. Uh, Bloomberg, Mark Gurman, he said that widgets will be kind of a central part of the watch interface starting this year. So this will be kind of a new way, sort of like glances, which was which were available on watchOS 1 and removed in watchOS 3, I think. But basically a way to view quick bits of information from different apps at a glance, basically. And apparently they might even change what the digital crown does. So the digital crown will take you directly to that widget view. So that'll be interesting to see. I'm curious how Apple implements that and how they tie it into existing widget frameworks and all of that on the iPhone. Chance, tell me I'm going to get a a watch face construction kit or just better watch faces than the two or three we get every year. Uh, I wouldn't expect that. I I think we'll get a couple more watch faces like we always do. Maybe some changes to some of the older ones, but I don't foresee this being the year of like custom watch faces. I got this um, vision of somewhere in Cupertino. There's this big whiteboard and they write the year at the top and the watch Mm -hmm. team meets and they, every year they write, you know, uh, user generated watch faces and then they write it on the whiteboard and they look at each other and they all laugh hysterically and they erase it. And then they do the same (laughs) thing every year. Well, one thing that could be interesting is with this widget stuff, I could just see somebody like David Smith I mean, he already has WatchSmith. I could see him doing some pretty close to custom watch face stuff through whatever widget system Apple implements. So 
yeah. that could be like a compromise for you. Well, it depends if the widget would appear when you lift your wrist or if it would appear as that a watch and you'd have to scroll to it. But the um, I'm, I'm using the utility face, gang, the one that was there on day one. So <laughs> just saying. <laughs> they started strong with that. They did. And thank gosh, because it's really, uh, you know, <laughs> it really hasn't <laughs> got much better. Uh, Mac OS. Yeah, uh, similar to iPad OS. We haven't heard a whole lot about Mac OS I mean, on people's wish list is sort of, again, stage manager, system settings, and maybe bringing over a couple apps or features that are currently iPhone or iPad only. But it seems like there's not a whole lot, not much of a story on macOS 14 yet. I mean, last year was a pretty big year, all things considered, between things like stage manager and freeform. But this year's not looking like much. It really feels like it's all hands on deck for the headset. Mm-hmm. If you think about priorities, I mean, iPhone's always the top priority, iOS is. And then if you put the headset as the top priority this year, you still have to do something to iOS. And then if watchOS is going to be a big update, that I don't think for a company that's like Apple and they're a big company, but each team is so small, I don't think that leaves much time for things like Mac and Apple TV and HomePod. This episode of the Mac Power Users is brought to you by Indeed. Go to Indeed.com slash MPU and join more than 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. What's a game where no one wins? The waiting game. When it comes to hiring, don't wait for great talent to find you. Find them first with Indeed. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, you can use their powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. Indeed streamlines hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. With Indeed Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job. According to Indeed data, U.S. Indeed's hiring platform is really great because it gets you one step closer to the hire by immediately matching you with quality candidates. Even better, Indeed is the only job site where you only pay for applications that meet your must-have requirements, making it an unbelievably powerful hiring platform, delivering four times more hires than all other job sites combined, according to TalentNest 2019. So join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash MPU. And that offer is good for a limited time. So claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash MPU. That's I-N-D-E-E-D dot com slash MPU. Terms and conditions apply. Do you need to hire? You need Indeed. And our thanks to Indeed for the support of the Mac Power users and all of Relay FM. So we've talked a little bit about some of the rumors and reporting that y'all have done about what is potentially coming at WBDC. But now I want to move into full-blown wish casting. So these are things that we would like to see, not necessarily grounded in any sort of reality. Uh, And I figure we could go round robin. So we each have uh, three things that we have picked to bring to the group. Uh, So David, why don't you start us off? Uh, Responsive mobile widgets. You know, they put the widgets on the iPad and the and the phone, 
but you really can't do anything with them except tap on them to open an app. In the old days, they did things. Yeah. I mean, we we had a calculator that worked. There was stuff you could do. And I get it that they had to get it out the door, that they're using Swift UI for these. So they've kind of changed the underlying architecture. But this will be, I believe, the third year of these things. So I would love to see them get more functionality. Please, please, please. Even just playing interactivity for play pause buttons and like being able to start a timer with timer without just having the widget take you all the way there, that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. It feels like so simple, but or check off a, a task in a task manager mm-hmm. app, or I mean, just like basic stuff. And they don't do that. And uh, that's something I'd like to see uh, to show up this year, which is a wish cast. I have no, I guess mm-hmm. I, we should just state. None of us have any like inside information on any of these. These are just things we want. Yep, just just hey, make make us happy. These are the these are the things. Uh, for me, I'd really love to see this be like the year of Apple Music. The overall Apple Music experience has gotten a lot better recently. With you have Dolby Atmos and spatial audio and the real time lyrics, all of those features, which are very very cool. But just the Apple Music app itself feels outdated kind of confusing in terms of navigation how to even find some of those new features that they've added it needs a rethink to make both improve discovery of new things and also keep track of what's already in your library then kind of building on that i'd like to see crossfade which is something that's already on apple music for android to kind of transition one song into the other with you can set like how many seconds of overlap you want there to be mm-hmm. and something else i think that is long overdue is something kind of like spotify connect which is where you start playing something on one of your devices with spotify and it's instantly and reliably you can control it on another device so i can start playing something on my my iphone and then control it on my mac or my ipad without having to like choose anything from an airplay menu or any of that. It just works. And that kind of shows, I think, even how Spotify is taking better advantage of people with multiple Apple products than even Apple is. Because there's pretty much between individual Apple devices, there's no real easy awareness of what Apple Music on one device is doing versus the other. It seems like Apple's just kind of lost their way with the music app interface stuff. And like I said, there's been so many great new features in terms of the audio quality and all of that, but the actual app, good luck finding like the video, like sorting between videos and interviews and new releases and your library. Like it's all just a mess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so much of that is still based on the old iTunes on the Mac, right? Mm -hmm. So having those modern features I would imagine is is extremely difficult if they wanted to do them. Like I would kill for the sort of that persistence, right? I'm listening to an album in my car on CarPlay. I get home, I hit play on my Mac and it knows what I was listening to and it, you know, brings it mm-hmm. over just like lots of other handoff stuff works. And one thing I think Apple could do to maybe like improve the pace of music Apple Music updates is unbundle it from iOS. So Apple Music could get updates independent of the major iOS releases, which they're already doing that with the Apple Music Classical app. So I think just being able to do that and 
roll out updates like a normal app to make changes and improvements much quicker. That that would help a lot. Mm-hmm. Totally agree. What about you, Stephen? Uh, for me, I'm, I'm going to say that notifications and widgets need more room to breathe. This is not a new problem in macOS, although they made it worse uh, in Big Sur when iOS-style widgets came over. And they now, they split the space, like the top third is notifications and the bottom two thirds are your widgets. And I think those widgets just need more space. And so I would love to see, I'm honestly, I'd love to see Dashboard come back. I feel like they killed it just exactly the wrong time. Mm-hmm. But having some sort of mode where I can see more widgets at once, make them more accessible, and give those notifications more room to breathe. It's just it's so crowded over there on the right-hand side of macOS, and it just doesn't have to be. So I'd say bring back Dashboard. I love it. I love. I hope you get that, man. I want it. Yeah. That's the reason why I've got this iPad parked under my Mac, because mm-hmm. I want widgets and a Dashboard. It'd be cool to be able to put that on my Mac. And it goes so well with your idea for these widgets becoming interactive. Like, yeah. just, it, it's... Give let them you know let them shine and right now they're sort of just stashed away like a secret and you click on one and like it doesn't really do very much it's just kind of kind of frustrating. Yeah, I mean, just imagine if you did the swipe up on your trackpad to clear your apps and you've got on your desktop uh, your your task list for the day that you can check items off on today's weather a listing of the next appointments that you've got coming up. I mean, that stuff could be right there waiting for you mm-hmm. and. And they've done it before. That's the yeah. thing, right? I mean, this isn't this isn't a new idea, but I don't know. I, I just want um, the audience to know the way Stephen wrote about this in the outline is he said, "Bring back dashboard, you cowards." <laughs> <laughs> I love the I love your energy. I love your energy yeah. on this. Do one. it, yeah. Bring yeah. it back, Chance. What about you? Give us give us your second pick. Uh, second, I think messages there's the app needs some changes in a day where we get so much communication through iMessage and text messaging in particular some new filtering options because right now you can filter between known and unknown senders but it doesn't really stick like if your messages app if you close it or move to another device it goes back to the unified view which in a way kind of defeats the purpose and part of that could also, I think, be solved by somehow filtering out like the autofill two-factor codes that you just get like multiples of every day and they just clutter up your messages interface and push more important things down towards the bottom. Yeah. So some sort of sorting there would be nice. Yeah, and I agree. I don't feel like the the filtering is sufficient or reliable as it is. Then there are some obvious things for group iMessages too, like read receipts for groups and and typing indicators, things that other group messaging apps like WhatsApp and Telegram have that Apple just hasn't added for whatever reason. Yeah, the groups do seem like sort of a, oh, those are here too. Maybe we should move those features <laughs> into it. Um, I like all those. Uh, my next one is one that I, I talked about not that long ago, but I'm bringing it back up again is uh, something in between what we have now for CarPlay and the future where it's going to like take over the whole car. 
Uh, this is prompted by me buying a new truck with a 14-inch display, which is just bananas. And CarPlay's kind of janky on it. Like, the buttons are all really spread out, and sometimes, like, really far to the side. You can't really reach very easily. And it could be denser and, I think, just better looking overall. I don't know if that if that's in the cards because, you know, new fancy car play is out in the distance where it's going to take over your gauge cluster screen and, you know, show your engine temperature or your battery charge or whatever. But uh, I would settle for better layouts on big screens. And I really would like to be able to upload custom wallpapers. The ones that are in there are fine, but it's a pretty limited selection. And look, I would love to have some of my you know, really cool Mac OS 9 or 10 wallpapers there in the background of CarPlay. Yeah. So I think that would be sweet. And of course, how could I forget? Option to sync app positions between cars. Right now, every car is unaware of the other cars in your life. So if you always want messages in the bottom left and you get in your wife's car and you haven't set your phone up there yet, that doesn't stay synced. I understand that for sometimes you would want them not to. So this could be an option of like, hey, keep these two cars in sync or whatever. But that's pretty frustrating if you have more than one car in your life that has car play that if you want to keep things in the same place or with the same settings, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a dance. Yeah, I just got a new car with a big CarPlay screen too. It's the Mustang Maki, so it's the por- the horizontal or yeah, the no, the portrait screen, not landscape. So it also kind of fails to take advantage of all of that screen real estate. There's screens where the album artwork like a music on the now playing screen it's just tiny. Like yeah. why wouldn't you fill up the screen and make the font bigger and it's just so many just basic things there. Yeah, and I get how they ended up where they are. Like when they started, you know, a lot of screens in cars were about the size of Mm -hmm. an iPhone or maybe like an iPad mini, but we are well past that now. And like you said, even different orientations. And so I would like to see them revisit this. I just hope they're not sitting on their hands waiting for that future car play that may or may not ever happen. Yeah, that's a while away. I think so too. Well, I mean, it's hypothetical really because now we're hearing from the car companies that they don't really want apple and google to take over they'd rather be able to sell it as a service and come up with their own thing and Mm -hmm. so that 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 carplay 2.0 may only be in very limited models but uh who knows but the uh, yeah i I agree with you i i just think it needs to be aware better awareness of the screen size and have options that make sense for each one i don't know if that's too big of an ask but i i I like that wish i like all of these wishes Uh, my uh for my Mm -hmm. second one no surprise. I want even more energy and effort put into focus modes. Uh, a couple things that really stand up for me are first more focus modes. We only get 10. I would like more. Like I, I was uh, talking about this on the automators podcast. I have what I call a podcasting focus mode. And when I'm in it, almost nobody can get a hold of me because I don't want to be interrupted while I'm recording. But because we only get 10, I can't have one for each podcast. So if I'm recording, you know, um, Mac power users and Rosemary starts texting me, she gets through the wall because she's another person in the podcasting focus mode. I want to have one for each, each show. I, and maybe this is a, an edge case thing, but I feel like 10 is a very arbitrary number and that could just as easily be 99. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so that's, that's one. The other one is, uh, 
because the way focus modes work is you can set people that you want to let in or say, don't let anybody in, but these people, that was the change you made last year. It's great. I love it. But now I want them to use contact groups. So I can say, for instance, let clients in for the next hour or don't let clients in after 5 PM or something like that. And it seems like such an obvious um, way to do this, that you organize your contacts into groups and then you use the groups as focus mode filters and, I know that's very niche, but it would immediately improve focus modes for everybody if they did it. Totally. It, it feels like those limitations are just a number picked out of the air. And the contact group thing is super smart. I mean, even with the focus mode update this past year, where you could like opt in versus opt out, like it made a lot of that easier. But there's just so much about setting a focus mode up, which is like, this is a long list of toggles, and you got to make sure you don't forget anybody or. You know, going back and editing editing them can be a bit of a pain. So I think a bunch of that UI could be cleaned up. Well, I mean, I talk about it and write about focus modes a lot because I think they can be really transformative for people in terms of, you know, ending the tyranny of mobile devices. You know, mm-hmm. the you know, these things do interrupt you and prevent you from doing good work often because of the notifications. And if you understand focus modes, it can make a huge difference. But I feel like it comes down to these little friction points. Like we're almost there so close. Yeah. I uh, actually have hopes for this one. Cause I feel like, I feel like it has a champion at Apple. I don't know who it is. And I feel like it's going to get some updates this year. And those would be two obvious ones. I mean, it's gotten back to back years, right? It was announced yeah. two years ago and got improvements last year. And usually these things are on a multi-year cycle. So someone is, is pushing it, I think, which is exciting. Yeah, that's a, one of the other fun things about WWC is you get to find what apps are on the multi-year cycle versus the apps that are on the we'll spend a year on it and then we all ignore it for the next five years yeah. cycle. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like I, I'm really hoping this year. I'm really hoping for Apple Mail. Last year we got nice changes to Apple Mail. I'd like to see that again this year. And then mm-hmm. we're like, oh, okay, Apple Mail is getting regular updates now. That's good. So I'll kick us off for the the last round here and. It kind of sticks with my CarPlay theme, but now I'm talking about the watch. I think watchOS could take better advantage of the large screen on the Ultra. Now, maybe some of those rumor changes with widgets would do that, right? I could see more at once. But even in things like the list of apps, it's like, okay, I can see maybe a little bit more than my wife's you know, tiny Apple Watch. But I feel like a lot of the targets are way bigger than they need to be. The information density is not very good. I think especially on things uh, on faces like modular, modular utility, where you can have a bunch of complications. Like some of this could be rethought for this bigger watch. And I understand that it's only a single model and a lineup, but the whole Apple Watch line has gotten bigger over the years. And I'm just not sure Apple's taking the advantage of that, that they could. And the Ultra sticks out a little bit in that because it is, it is so large, but just, kind of a rethinking about how they show things in watchOS and in its UI. I mean, early on, I'm sure I'll remember, the screen was a rectangle, and Apple just kind of hid that because the glass was black around it, right? So in the sun, you could very clearly see where the screen was and where the bezels were. But over time, the screen is pushed out closer to the edges. And on something so small, every millimeter counts, right? I understand, like, macOS, the UI is basically the same on a, 13-inch MacBook up to a XDR. Like, I understand that, right? It's, that's not, uh, they're all big and 
in comparison to something like a watch or a phone. <laughs> but I would like to see them uh, experiment a, a bit more with that. And I'm hopeful that widgets are a good step in that direction. But I hope even that is a bit more useful to those of us wearing bigger watches because we have the screen real estate and we should we should use it. Okay, I'll go with my last pick. It's a control center revamp. I just feel like the control center on the uh, iPhone and iPad, it needs attention. Like, why can't I press the calculator button and launch pCalc? And why can't I have them responsive to the current focus mode where they change the tool set? I just feel like that's one where they built it and it really hasn't changed much over the years. I would love to see that get a little more juice this year. And that's one that kind of has been rumored a little bit. Oh, has it? I don't know. I didn't even know that. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if the source is not someone like Mark Gurman, so I'm not entirely sure, but it's it has been tossed out as something they're working on. Well, that would be nice. Mm-hmm. What about you, Chance? What's your last pick? Uh, finally, for me, it's the Activity Ring system in watchOS, which is a great system and apple knocked it out of the park with just the idea and the three ring colored thinking all of that's great but we haven't really seen any changes since the beginning and there needs to be a better sort of system for things like rest days apple watch should be intelligent enough to know when you've been working out or moving around a lot and it should be able to tell you on days where You should take it easy, maybe not focus entirely on beating your move goal or automatically lowering your move goal. Things like that to, I think, encourage maybe a little bit healthier of a system that's, you have breaks where you don't have to chase that activity move ring streak every day, Mm -hmm. sometimes to the detriment of your health or your mental health and that type of stuff. Yeah, dude, I, I totally agree. It's, it's a bit ridiculous we don't have some way to say, hey, you know Apple Watch? I'm sick today. Uh, I'm going to be in mm-hmm. bed coughing with a fever. I'm not <laughs> going to fill my rings. Or like, I had it come up recently. I took uh, a couple weeks off from a lot of physical activity after my recent car accident. Like, the watch knows I was in an accident because it was screaming at me that I'd been in an accident, <laughs> right? It's like, but then that afternoon, it's like, hey, you want to stay in this hour? It's like, no, I don't. Like, I'm on the couch with the ice on my head. Like, leave me alone. Um some sort of better awareness, either programmatically or the user being able to go in and say, look, um, I'm not, I'm not going to do it today. I want to pause my streaks, right? Like it's nothing worse than you're on a good streak. And then you have to like fly somewhere right. and you just, you, you don't close your rings that day. It's just, it's been this way since the beginning. It's like, it's time for this to be a bit more flexible. And these are things too, that some of the Apple watch competitors already offer. There's, yep. Things like the Aura Ring and the, I think it's like a Whoop Whoop Fitness Band or mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And those things are getting a lot more popular. And they have all of these sort of intelligent yeah. guidance features. So that's something Apple should address. One thing I would like to see them, uh, if they're in there, if they're in the Activities Ring code and doing stuff, how cool <laughs> would it be for me to be able to add, either add additional rings or replace the three? Like, what if what I'm focusing on right now is like sleeping enough? And what if there my sleep app mm-hmm. contributed like a sleep goal? And that ring is eight hours. I want to fill it up every night. Or I'm tracking water intake or something like that. Like the UI is so good. And it really is like something that I pay attention to every day. 
I find myself wanting other sorts of metrics to be tracked by that UI. And that's, again, something Apple could do on their, like, programmatically from, like, if you've been exercising, just automatically change the exercise ring on an off day to meditation or breathing or sleep or something. That, mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that idea. And these are not new ideas. I mean, we've been talking about this for three or four years now, every year. Like, we need rest days, we need sick days, and, you know, more control of the rings. It, cut, it This is not, like, coming out of the blue. I feel like... There's been plenty of time to add this stuff. This episode of Mac Power Users is made possible by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. You can stand out with a beautiful website, engage with your audience, and sell anything, products, services, even the content you create. Squarespace has you covered. You can use insights to grow your business. If you've ever wondered where your visitors and sales are coming from, You can analyze all that stuff in Squarespace. And once you have that data, you could then go improve your website and build a marketing strategy based on top keywords or most popular products and content. And that expands out to Squarespace email campaigns. You can have visitors sign up and become email subscribers, starting them on the journey to become customers. And with Squarespace's awesome templating and customization options, Your email campaigns can match your site and your brand ingredients like colors and logo really easily. And all this stuff is managed by their built-in analytics. You can use a suite of integrated features and useful guides to help maximize prominence among search results. I love building atop of Squarespace because they give you everything you need to build not only an amazing website, but an amazing brand. You can really dive in and make everything feel like your company, your brand, your voice. So check it out, squarespace.com slash MPU. There they have a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MPU to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash MPU. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the show. All right, Chance, we usually like to finish up these interviews with um, asking you about some of your favorite apps and services. What are the little apps and services that bring you joy and delight? I think one of them definitely is Timery, which I use not necessarily to track my total like working time. Like I don't use it to s- say, okay, I have to get to eight hours of track time in Timery today. It's more so for comparing time from day to day, seeing how the different categories of work that I do compare like writing versus admin stuff versus podcasting. And then also I like to look at the use timery to look at the start and the end times of every day. So I can look at when I started my first timer and when I ended my last timer, because that's helpful if it gets to like two 30 or three in the afternoon and I'm trying to figure out why I'm already so tired and I can look and say like, Oh, like, you started at 6 a.m. today because you had some embargo to write and you put it off. Like, yeah. that's good context to have. Yeah. Time data is just so helpful. I mean, I, I really can't understate that. If you have, if you never tried it, you should. Another one that I like a lot is Tot. It's the kind of lightweight text editor from the Icon Factory. It I keep it in my Max menu bar and I use it to kind of work through different headline iterations or kind of or paste something that I'm going to need to reference later, but not right that moment. 
It's sort of like an ephemeral version of Apple Notes for me. Then something else that I really rely on is Solver. It's a notepad-style calculator on mm-hmm. the Mac and actually just recently came to iPad. It uses You can use like natural language and kind of type things out, and it'll perform calculations based on the numbers and what you typed out. Yeah, I use it all the time and love it to death. Um, one more is called Tabs to Links. It's a Safari extension that will take, gives you the option to copy each of the links that you have open in Safari at that, at that particular time. So I copy from that list into like the show notes for 9to5Mac Daily or something, which saves you from having to manually go through each tab and copy that stuff over. Oh man, thanks for this one. I am in. <laughs> I'm getting it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure, it was developed by my a colleague, but I, even if even if we fired him, I'd ah, say it was great. So Benjamin Mayo, yeah, another yeah. another great guy over at Nine to Five, yeah. All right. Um, one thing recently too that I've since the advent of Apple Silicon is running iPhone and iPad apps on the Mac. Mm-hmm. I don't do this for many things, but two that I do use are Overcast, which I love. That's now available on the Mac. Mac, having a Mac app was really the only reason I was sticking with Apple Podcasts. So I've been able to fully move to Overcast on every device. Then there's Apollo, which is the Reddit app. And that also, the iPad version, you can just run on your Mac. And Reddit, too, kind of like Twitter, is an important part of the workflow. And then also just for enjoyment, it's a social network. So having that on the Mac is quite nice. Yeah, I wish more developers would offer that. I mean, I know sometimes the UI isn't great. Like, there's some there's some weirdness sometimes uh, in these, but it is so helpful, especially Overcast for me. Just like I can pop in and like make sure a show posted correctly from mm-hmm. from a Mac without like finding my iPhone on my desk or you know fishing an iPad out or something. Uh, even if it's subpar, sometimes it's very useful. It's better than nothing. And I think for sure. some of the developers that have opted into it will even tell you as much. Like, it's not great, but it's better than... I, otherwise, I wouldn't make a Mac app. Yeah, yeah, it wouldn't exist if it wasn't for this, right? And that's the thing. I, I feel like um, every year around WWC, I start using Apple's podcast app. You know, because I just want to see, once I get the betas installed, what have they changed and how is it working and every year I look forward to going back to Overcast. So that's the one for me too, I think. Um, another one that I like a lot is called Denim. So this is an app for iOS that you can make custom playlist artwork for Apple Music. So it has a whole bunch of different like unique images, color gradients, different text options. So one thing I like to do in Apple Music is every month, make like a playlist for that month just of stuff I'm listening to stuff I like. So I use denim to make that custom playlist artwork. And then I can go back each month and view what songs I liked that month month. And denim kind of gives you a little bit more personalization compared to the plain kind of album artwork style that Apple music uses. Yeah, this is really cool. I did not know that this was uh, an app and looking at it in the app store now, I think there's a lot of customization and, and what a great way to spice up 
these things, right? Because I think by default, mm-hmm. does it just do like a grid of the album yeah. artwork, which of four albums from that playlist, yeah, yeah, which like visually is kind of hard to parse. And if you listen to the same mm-hmm. types of music, it may not even be all that useful. But you can set up really specific things for each playlist. This is this is awesome. Um, another one that this kind of goes back to having two Macs in two separate places is screens, the VNC client that I can use while I'm at home to access something that I might've forgotten to move to iCloud on the Mac studio, or just something that I can only do on the Mac studio. That's a good one. And I think that's, those are probably my most used ones are those handful. Awesome. Yeah, a bunch of good stuff in there. And of course, gang, all the stuff is in is in the show notes for you to check out. Uh, I think Dave and I definitely learned about a few new things. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Chance, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and uh, all the work you do over at 9to5Mac. I know you guys work really hard there and you are, you know, my favorite Mac fire hosts, you know, <laughs> in terms of oh. like websites where you go and they they just cover so many different things. It's great. Uh, I know you are going to need to be starting taking your vitamins and getting some rest because when WWDC <laughs> yeah. hits, you guys are going to be in higher gear, I bet. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing all the 9 to 5 coverage for WWDC when that hits. Uh, Chance, where do people find you? Um, I am on mastodon.social and on Twitter as at Chance Miller. Same on Instagram. Then otherwise, just 9to5Mac.com. That's where all my writing is, the podcast, and the rest of the great stuff from my team. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us at relay.fm slash MPU. Thank you to our sponsors today, 1Password, Text Expander, Indeed, and Squarespace. And we'll see you next time.